When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my name's Stuart Miles and welcome to the Bocalent Podcast. Still seen as the king of the streaming market, Netflix has reported its lost subscribers for the first time in over a decade as price hikes, cost of living and streaming fatigue have all started to take their toll on the streaming services. But what does that mean for the likes of you and me? Pocalins editor Chris Hall is here to discuss the news. Meanwhile, I've been talking to Offspray Charging, one of the largest public charging networks in the UK, about whether the country is ready to go all in on electric from 2030. And Pocalins Cam Bunton has been running with the new Huawei Watch GT runner and joins me to tell us more about how he's been getting on. One to get or one to avoid? Stay tuned to find out. But first, back to you, Chris. What do we think of Netflix having lost all these subscribers for the first time in a decade? Well, I think the amusing thing about this is that everybody has been celebrating Netflix for so many years, saying, oh, it's great, it's showing the way of the future, it's fantastic. And then as soon as there's a report of a loss of subscribers... Everybody starts saying, oh, it wasn't that good anyway. And they've got a huge long laundry list of problems with the company. Mm. So I think the first thing we need to do is, is, is kind of look at this with some kind of realism. And Netflix revealed that it lost 200,000 subscribers uh, in the first quarter of 2020, which is, yeah, that, that's not the same as 2022. Yeah, sorry. And that's not quite the same as adding millions like we've seen in the past. But there's quite a lot of context that needs to be considered here. And one of the things is that uh, any subscribers in Russia now may well be cut off completely. And I believe there was about a million in Russia. So they would be detracted from the figures. So it's perhaps not the huge loss that maybe it was before. Um, but there is there's a lot going on here. And one of the things that Netflix is talking about, of course, is sharing your details so that other households can log in and Netflix has highlighted this as a particular problem and they estimate that there's something like a hundred thousand extra people accessing the service. Hundred million. Hundred million. Hundred million, yes. I've Sorry. I've used my zeros. Yeah. Hundred million yeah, 100 additional million. households. Which which sounds a lot. It does sound like a lot. Even I mean, what it, it sounds like a lot. 100 million. It sounds like I loads. Mean, one of the things that's interesting about this is I've seen people say it's talking about, well, I only share it within my household and stuff. And if you actually go into your Netflix account, you'll see there in it's written on the page that you are allowed to share it within your house. They set up user profiles on the mm. service so that you can share it within your house. And they provide a subscription tier that allows you to watch it on multiple devices because you may well be watching it within your house. Um but yeah, it does look like password sharing is probably going to be the target for Netflix so that they can cut down on those additional millions that are in there watching the service and potentially not paying for it. So whether that will be some kind of verification or trying to get people to change their details or, you know. And that's perhaps... hard, isn't it? Because these, t- the, you know, one of the appeals of Netflix is, you know, you turn up any TV, whether it's your home TV, an Airbnb, whatever, punch in your code and off you go. There's no kind of, oh, we've seen you're in a different country. You know, can you prove that it's you? You know, how can you be here in two different places? Because 
you know, people travel uh, and, and all that stuff. So it's, and the TVs don't necessarily have, you know, face detection technology in them to no, say, no. oh, this is Chris watching telly. That's fine. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm signed into Netflix, my Netflix account on, I don't know how many devices. Um, it's certainly a lot easier to access Netflix than it is some other rival services like Now TV, for example, has been a particular example in the UK that is tricky. After a while, they say you're signing on too many devices. You know, it's actually a struggle to get to the content that you're yeah. legitimately allowed to watch. But yeah, I've been to Airbnbs and opened up the TV and found that there's a profile on somebody else's Netflix account so that you could just sit there as a guest and, and watch it. And perhaps that's not the way that the service was intended to be used. Now, one of the things they were talking about is the idea of introducing an ad tier model uh you know ad supported so to speak what do we think of that uh, given the way that uh the cost of living is changing now and bearing in mind that it's only really just starting you know if you weren't affected by the pandemic you may well be affected by changing in prices heading upwards now i think that could be a popular option and i suspect there would be a a, a huge swathe of people who would suddenly move to the lowest tier but looking at the way that netflix is currently structured and the fact that you have to pay quite a lot extra to get to their ultra hd level and the hdr and all of that stuff the best content and i suspect that you would be limited on the quality that you'd get if you went for the ad supported version as well so there'd probably be quite a lot to consider for me personally i think that would interrupt some of the viewing um, but there are a number of services out there that are paid for that also have adverts in them. Hmm. Now TV is a, is an example of that. So it's not unheard of. And certainly if it brings that price a lot further down, then it could be a popular option. For people. And I suppose that's the, that's the other thing you've mentioned now TV in the time over the last decade, the streaming platform, you know, the streaming industry has changed dramatically. I mean, it was Netflix was the one to get because it had all the content. And over the yeah. last 10 years, we've kind of seen, it was, we'll get Netflix and then Prime. And now it's like, we'll get Netflix, Prime, and Disney. And then it's like, get Netflix, Prime, Disney, and uh, HBO Max, if you're in the US. And, you know, it just keeps on adding and adding and adding. Had, obviously, that has had an effect. But do we think that that will continue to have an effect? And, um, and we'll start to see perhaps shrinkage of, of people going, well, I, don't, I can't subscribe to all of them, can I? Yeah, I think I think that's the thing. As new services can come along, people have subscribed to them. And Netflix is now in a position where it is the most expensive. And as I said, just said, it's charging more for its premium tier, whereas other services just say, well, here's the price. You, you, you get access to everything. So choosing Apple TV Plus or uh, Amazon Prime video stuff or going for Disney Plus, you're getting higher quality at lower prices. And although they don't have the... the the depth of catalogue that Netflix do, if you have to make a decision about which service you're going to keep, it's quite easy to say, well, I'm going to keep the quality and go for a lower price. I suspect that what's really going to happen is people will start juggling their subscriptions and they'll wait for a content build up in one platform and then they'll go there and subscribe for a few months and then they'll dive out. So the new challenge will be watching the windows of when content is available on some services to make sure that you can watch what you want, when you want, and then... Uh, get handy at diving in and out and cancelling subscriptions here and there that's that does sound like it's it's going to be a headache for users <laughs> i wonder it, if there'll be a yeah. 
I wonder if there'll be a kind of, you know, a, a service that tells you then, I know you can get, you know, what services, you can get services to tell you what shows are on what service, but I wonder it's like, right, this is the optimum time to watch these, this, you know, to get a Netflix subscription because this is coming out, this is coming out, blah, blah, blah. Watch it all in, you know, binge watch it in a weekend and off you go. Yeah, well, we've already seen some some people thinking strategically like that. And the example that comes to mind for me was Game of Thrones with uh, with Now TV, obviously, because if you weren't a, subs- a Sky subscriber, then Now TV was the way to get it. But there was a rolling window in that. So you would have to come in and I think subscribe for about three months to be able to watch it because there were so many episodes across the season. And if you waited until all of them had been aired, you couldn't then go in and binge watch because some of the first ones would have gone from the service. <laughs> so there probably is a break-even point where you can buy some directly because often they would be on sale from 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 some services as an individual episode and then watch some of them on streaming services. Um, I know that I have done that with Grey's Anatomy on some occasions uh, until I got lazy and just just ended up subscribing to everything. But yeah. It's time to cancel. It's time to be strategic. Still to come, Cam gives us his verdict on the Huawei Watch GT Runner. Pretty much matches what Garmin does. Um, and so you can tell they've obviously been investing quite a lot. They've got this big new fitness center in Shenzhen, I think, where they're based. Um, they've built this huge gym where they get people to do different sports. Similar to, do you remember when Apple Watch started their big health push? There are roughly 30,000 public electric vehicle chargers in the UK at present. However, it's estimated that at least 2.3 million, yes, 2.3 million will be needed by 2030 when the UK government bans the sale of all new vehicles powered solely by petrol or diesel. So what's got to happen in the next eight years for us to reach that target? I recently caught up with the CEO of Osprey Charging, one of the UK's largest public network charging providers, to discuss the future of EV charging in the UK and what we can expect as the deadline looms. I started by asking whether we have enough charges in the UK for electric vehicles at the moment. Today? No. Yeah. <laughs> no. The, the, the very short and honest answer is no. I think what, what that short answer fails to explain is that we're in the middle of um, a, a huge deployment um, which means that we absolutely will be fine. We are going to have the infrastructure to allow the mass UK population to transition to electric vehicles. But I think if you were to go out on the roads and, and do a litmus test of, is there enough today? We have to be honest and say no. Um, I think what's what's great is that whilst the world paused the pandemic, the there was an absolute step change in the quality and quantity of the charging infrastructure. Uh, so over the last two years, we've seen a huge change and it's getting better by the day. And so that's the case, isn't it? For a long time, people have kind of rolled up at a moto service station and kind of found one charging bay that's not very fast, that's sometimes broken, and 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 that and that's led people to perhaps move towards Tesla with their supercharger infrastructure. Yes. Do you think that that's given Tesla a chance to to sort of take this the lead, and therefore it's going to be hard for companies like yourself to catch up, or is that now becoming more of a level playing field? I, I think. Tesla did a fantastic job in in um, creating this early adopter set that shows that it can be done. I, I would say now, if you look at the, the market share of electric vehicles, um, you know you've got the, the traditional marks are selling thousands and thousands of cars, and you know they can't use the Tesla network. So there's a there's a nationwide network of thousands of open charge points to serve all the other marks as well now. Uh, so Tesla have made a, a massive impact globally on this transition. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the, the motorway services. I, I think. 
we we talk so much about the nationwide coverage of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. One one environment that always gets picked up, of course, is the motorway services. And I think it's for two reasons. If you look at the fact that most people in the UK will be able to eventually charge their vehicle at home every night, you've got to think of it just like plugging in your phone every single night uh, and you have all the charge you need. Um, but when you leave the home and the place you will normally go is the motorway services on a long journey. And likewise, what we see today is that when journalists are given electric cars to try out, of course, the first place they go is to the services. And the services historically, the motorway services have not had a sufficient infrastructure, let alone the numbers, but also the quality and reliability. Yeah, thankfully, mm. there's lots of things happening today that means that is changing. It isn't going to happen overnight. It will happen over the next two or three years. But but it's certainly uh, started to improve on what wasn't sufficient previously. Now, I want to pick you up on something that you said there, that you believe that most people will have the ability to charge at home. Yeah. That seems to be one of the main uh, sort of holdbacks, so to speak, for people buying an electric car. I know quite a few people that will say, I'd love to get an electric car, but I live in a terraced house. I don't have a drive. Like, I'm waiting for my my council to put in charges in those paving stones, you know, kind of thing. How do you, do you see that that's really an issue? Or do you think that there'll be an infrastructure to a point where it is just at the bottom of the road or, you know, a couple of streets away? I think, look, perception is reality. But I think in this case, the fear is worse than the reality. And if you remember the day when we all passed our driving test and we got our keys, what we have is freedom in that moment. Mm. And, I, and I think clearly what none of us want now is to have that freedom taken away and to be told you can only drive you know, 100 miles or 90 miles and then you can't charge. You know, we're lucky that the vehicles that have been sold today, each of them can do as an average at least 250 miles. Um, and you've got to remember, most people in the UK drive on average eight miles a day. So um, when you look at the fact, again, that, as I say, over 60% of people have a driveway at home, for the majority of people, this is really simple. However, let's, let's address the, the problem here, is that if you're one of those, the very small percentage, that, and you're driving more than 250 miles a day, or if you don't have access to a private driveway, you are going to need a public charging infrastructure to help you get by. When you think about the mileage that most people do in a week, you're not talking about going to a public charging site every day, it'll be like when you go to a petrol station, maybe once a week or once a fortnight. Um, we have you know, thousands of members uh, of our business today who um, you know, they charge with us once a week. And once a week, they'll pop to the local supermarket or, or the local uh, petrol station and they'll charge their vehicle then. So there's a proportion of society that will need public charging. And again, for those, we can't say it's been sufficient in the past, but it, again, as I say, it's being deployed today. And what you have today, which you didn't have two years ago, is probably four or five nationwide, reliable, reputable, easy-to-use charging networks. And that's been the major development over the last two years, which means now it doesn't matter if you don't have a driveway. It doesn't matter if you're driving hundreds of miles a day. You, you can make this work. And that's one of the things, isn't it? I certainly, I mean, I've been driving electric cars since the beginning of 2019. And, you know, the initial issues there were... Uh, I don't think rage anxiety is a thing once you start driving an electric car. That's, that's, it's understandable before you start driving. But once you start driving, you, I don't think it, it, it sort of moves very quickly to the back of your mind. Yeah. But the electric chargers, you go there, you, you used to be able to need a, a membership, a key fob, something of that, you know, that line. Then you'd go to one place, it'd be a different network to something else. How is Osprey and, and your company trying to resolve that 
and 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 make it easier is it just a case of now you can just contactlessly pay to charge on the spot or do you still need to be a member and still need to have a key fob and all those kind of no i think i think it's worth thinking about we're going to be in a world pretty soon where all of the leading charging networks um who are highly competitive are using equally reliable chargers okay so there's never a question of who do i trust you you'll trust these big major networks like osprey who are across the uk so then how do i make you choose to drive into my site rather than the competitor site across the road. I need to make it as easy as possible for you. Hmm. Um, I remember two years ago, we spent so much time in these government consultation meetings about we must get contactless card readers on every machine. You know, that's that's a thing in the past now. We no longer need to worry about that because the networks that, that don't offer that, they're going to die. Uh, and the, so now we're at a point where you've got the major nationwide networks there. There's contactless payment. The charges are reliable. So how do we now compete and beat the competition I need to make it so, so simple for you. So not only Apple Pay, Google Pay, but what's the next level? How do I make it so clear and so simple to use so that public charging is not even a consideration in your mind? And that's really where the thought is today. We're spending a huge amount of time looking at things like uh, site safety, security, lighting, accessibility for those with mobility needs, um, you know, to try and beat each other to offer the best experience. So thankfully, payment is is an argument from two years ago. Um, you know, apps and accounts. If if I'm going to convince you to sign up to an account with me, I've really got to give you a good reason to do it. It's real value. And that's where we compete in the battlefield now. Now, one of those things is obviously about speed of charging as well. Yes, correct. How do you see that changing in the future? Because, you know, obviously some of the cars are accepting faster and faster charges. We've seen prototypes of, you know, chucking in kilowatt after kilowatt at high speeds and saying, we can charge this car in less than 20 minutes and stuff. Do you see that is the is the kind of... The, the end goal that, that we're all trying to achieve? It, like it's, it's a difficult one for us because, the, of course, the, the OEMs, the vehicle manufacturers, they're always going to talk about the highest numbers to sell their vehicles. So I spent 10 years working for Audi and Volkswagen in marketing. And, of course, we're going to say, you can charge this car in X minutes. Yeah. Um, the, the reality is um, that there's this race for the highest power charging. What, what we need to do is give you as much power as your vehicle can take in the time that you intend to be at that site. So if you want to spend five minutes at petrol station, we need to give you a huge amount of power into the vehicle then. If you're doing a weekly shop at the supermarket, we can spread that power over 45 minutes. What you really care about is that you can get on a charger. So we have to balance the load across the chargers. And we started to roll out a new technology last uh, last year, which is from a, a, a Nordic company, whereby if you imagine a situation, Stuart, that you pull in in a, in a brand new Porsche Taycan next to me and I'm in a 10-year-old Renault Zoe, the charging technology now knows that you need a lot more power than me in that instance, and it will balance the load within the site. And this is this is the really exciting bit where the technology is developing now to make sure that every individual car with its individual charging rate is getting the charge it needs in, in the optimum time. You know, there will always be these, almost a bit like F1, there'll always be this race for the fastest charge rate. But mm-hmm. if you talk to the OEMs, the reality is that we know, of course, there is a huge demand for the battery materials. They would much rather create twice as many 50 kilowatt batteries than they would do 100 kilowatt batteries. And there's also a lot of cooling technology required in these very high charge rates. So if you think about a world of high performance, you know, Porsches and Audis, of course, they're going to have this very high power charging. But most vehicles on the road are your Ford Focuses, your Volkswagen Polos. They are not going to have this high power technology. So our duty as a charging network is to make sure that whatever you drive, you get the optimum charge rate for your vehicle. 
And do you, and do you take that approach as well? I know Tesla do it, where if you turn up and you've you've kind of you've got most of your energy and really you're just there because you're bored and you're wasting twenty minutes of your life or whatever. Do you do you take that into account with your charging as well? Where acknowledging that someone that's on a, a much lower end, you know, actually needs the charge to be able to get to the next destination, gets that extra power as well. Yeah, I think what we're starting to bring in now you know we've seen the utilization of our charge network increase by over 300 percent in the last five months so our sites are significantly busier now than they were a year ago so we need to make sure that people aren't hogging charges we need to make sure that people are freeing up as soon as they've got not not full to 80 percent. and this is another thing which people you know when you live in an ev you get it but mm. of course the vehicle will slow your charge down at 80 percent. so we need to do things to encourage the etiquette to get people to move on in some sites, we've got two hubs in central London. You know, we have to introduce parking penalties there. Um, if people overstay, the overstay limit by a long way. In other cases, it's more about communication again and, and helping people to understand why, if you're 80%, it's in your interest to move off a public charger because, um, you know, you're, you're going to be sat for a, for a long time to get that final bit. So there's a lot of communication, a lot of education, and in, in some cases, we do need to, to introduce other incentives to persuade people to move on when, the, when they should do I mean, with the with the deadline coming towards twenty thirty of you know all cars having to have some form of electric you know electric charge within them, mm. what do you? It's obviously a boon time for you guys, right? Because there's only going to be more customers coming online that that want to use your charging network. Yeah. What do you see the biggest challenge with that being over the next you know eight years? I I, I was on day of the announcement. I was on. Um, Sky News and I was saying oh this will make no difference all the work is going ahead anyway and I was completely wrong because what it did was the 2030 ban for the average person on the street it said to them you will end up driving electric and from that moment on everybody's been sucking up every information data point they can so it really was a switch that just turned people I think the, the issue we have it's education and people say oh, what the government needs to spend more money there's, there's no need for money there's so much money from the private market into this the technology's there what we need is education and again i think if you can convince the majority of the uk that literally life with an ev is like plugging in your phone at night you, you made a massive step forward then we've got this difficult subject matter of charge rates you know people say what you've got 150 kilowatt charger osprey why am i not getting 150 kilowatts well in many cases it's because the car dealer hasn't educated you on the fact your car can only take 50. so there's, there's some really um, you know, basics that we have to get out into the public domain. Um, and we're doing a lot of work this year to work with media outlets to try and get those messages across. So, you know, if you understand what you should expect from your vehicle and what you should expect from different chargers, uh, then, then as you'll find, you, you can make life an EV very simple. And, and what do you think the future is? If I was to have this conversation with you in five years' time, um, bearing in mind you just said that you got the future wrong a minute ago, what would you, uh, what would you, what would you say? What does it look like? I think what we're you've seen a, a gradual raising of the bar in, in what public charging looks like. I think what we've been very lucky. We've been spoiled for the last three years. Where we've had this early adopter set who are very passionate. They're loyal. They're doing it for other reasons and why they might want a green vehicle. I think now we're in the mass market of, of the British driving public, and they are impatient. They're demanding, and this stuff simply has to work. And it's really good because it's giving all the charging networks a, a really uh, a rough ride and a, a real test for the first time. So people demand great amenities. They want to be able to get a coffee, go to the loo in a nice, safe space without driving a long way from their journey. So 
it means that this hyper-competitive market you've got between the charging networks, we are fighting you know, to the death for the best sites that can drive to the best experience. So I think the sites you're going to see being deployed this year, these big high-power hub sites, that they are the future of EV charging. And you know, I can look at sites that we celebrated launching three years ago. Now I think we've got to rip those out. We've got to start again. So the bar has raised significantly by the fact that we now have the mass market coming into electric vehicles. These are people that are being told by their employers, for example, here's the list, pick which EV you want. You know, these aren't people that have chosen an EV because of you know green credentials or, or other methods. So the, the bar is significantly higher on us. I think you're going to see a very different experience of public charging. Um, and, and what you're now going to see, now we all know that this EV thing is a cert. This is going to happen. Mm. You're now going to see the major landlords in the UK, the major supermarkets, the major retail parks come into companies like Osprey and saying, right, crikey, guys, we need a big charging hub. Let's do this together. And until now, it's been difficult for us to convince these large landlords, guys, trust us, this EV thing's going to happen. And we spent the you know, 2018, 2019, we we're trying to convince people this was the future. Now, everyone knows it's the future and, and it, there's a race on to get this, this, uh, these great hubs deployed. Huawei's been investing heavily in sports, health and fitness over the past couple of years. And the company's latest smartwatch, the Huawei Watch GT Runner, is a device that's very much focused on the experience of, you guessed it, runners, as the name indicates. But does that prove true after testing and how does it compare to the competition? Well, Cam Bunton has been running with the new watch and is here to tell us more. So, Cam, how did you get on? Yeah, I got on really well. I think... When you, I think after having tested a few different Huawei watches, I think the thing to always note is expectations of a smartwatch when you hear the term smartwatch, because mm. some, some like Apple and obviously Google's Wear OS platform go for that fully fledged, interactive, fluid, um, does everything lifestyley features, but then you tend to get a battery that lasts maybe a day or two at most. Yeah. Um, Huawei's approach is much more like Garmin's in the sense that you still get things like your smartphone notifications on your wrist, but the big the big appeal is the fitness tracking and the battery life. So this can go for something like two weeks uh, on a battery, and it has a full AMOLED screen, so it, wow. it lasts longer. But then as a fitness watch, it's fantastic. And so, how did you find? So, is it? What's the let's start perhaps at the beginning. What's the sort yeah. of main running focus here? Is is it just like helping you do interval training, or is there a bit more to it than that? Yeah, it's a, there's a lot to it. Um, the the actual hardware that they use to track the data. So, for instance, the the GPS tracking is multiband, and they've also designed the antenna so that it fits around the lug, the strap lug, so it comes out of the body of the watch. Um, the idea there being that you get a quicker, faster, and more reliable signal on GPS. Um, but also, yeah, coach planning that isn't just set plans. It actually adapts to your condition and how well you're recovering after your plan. So it's sort of rather than just going, we build you a plan for seven or eight weeks. It bases the next weeks on the performance of the week before. So it's constantly adapting based on your own performance and your ability. Um, so whether you're a beginner or an advanced runner, it can help you improve your running in in that sense by building you a plan that automatically syncs to your watch as well now probably it's remiss of us not to mention the word garmin they kind of dominate this space with their phoenix and forerunner series they do. How, how how does it compare to to the competition 
So I actually was running it with it alongside the Phoenix 7. Of course you were. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's what you have to do. I mean, the Garmin, Garmin, like you said, it's sort of the market leader. It's the one that you base everything else on because they are so good at what they do. And in terms of data and accuracy and things like that, it it pretty much matches what Garmin does. Um, And so you can tell they've obviously been investing quite a lot. They've got this big new fitness center in Shenzhen, I think, where they're based. Um, They've built this huge gym where they get people to do different sports. Similar to, do you remember when Apple Watch started their big health push? Um, So it's a similar sort of vibe and it's definitely paying off. And in terms of, so you feel it, it is comparable to the to the Garmin's. So that would then lead us to the question of of, of cost and, and and features. Does you know does it hold up there, or are you paying more for being Huawei or, or less? You you pay a bit less. I mean, the a big appeal here, obviously, with Huawei watches is that generally quite affordable. So um, you're looking at something like three hundred pounds, which is more along the lines of the the Vivo Active range of Garmin watches, which is sort of their lower end stuff. Um, so in terms of performance and value for money, you do get a lot for it. Um, so in that regards, it compares really well. And and it sounds positive, which is yes. great. Um, is there anything you didn't like? Well, it's it's missing some features that would be nice to have. Um, I think the one area where Garmin leads is in terms of things like contactless payments, uh, music streaming apps. So Garmin has support for things like Amazon Music, Deezer, Spotify, and you can download uh, your playlists onto your wrist so you don't have to take your phone with you when you go running. Uh, Huawei is yet to do that. The only option you have is to physically beam music files from your phone onto the watch's storage. You can't just use your Spotify account, for instance. And they don't really support any UK banks with their contactless payments either. So in terms of that, it could, it could be better. But in terms of fitness, they do really well. And And final last take on it? Finalist take, yeah, as a running watch, it's fantastic. It's really lightweight. It does the job and it tracks really well. So if that's what you want and you don't want to spend a ton of money on a Phoenix, then this will do the job. Well, that's it for this week's show. Until next time, thanks for listening. Pip, pip. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.